0: Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology. Presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at anthologypod.com, and if you want to contact me, you can like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at Obsessive Viewer, send an email to matt at com, or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results. Also, if you wish to support Anthology with your wallet, there's a donate button on anthologypod.com. And a link uh, to that donate page is also in the show notes of this episode. Every donation made using that donate button goes directly toward the fees to keep the podcast running. It can also help me pay for Twilight Zone and Rod Serling related books and DVD releases of future series that I plan to cover on the show, like Tales of Tomorrow, One Step Beyond, Science Fiction Theater. All around, everything goes right back to this podcast finally, if you're in Indianapolis, my friends and I at The Obsessive Viewer are hosting an event on October 14th. It's the third annual Shocktober in Irvington, where we rent out the Irving Theater, screen short horror films from local filmmakers, uh, interview the filmmakers between each screening, and then we raffle off DVDs, Blu-rays, and gift cards to local businesses. Um, All all the proceeds go right to the Irvington Historical Society and help support a great community in Indianapolis. Um, And as a bonus for Anthony. Anthology listeners, you can get $1 off the price of admission by using the promo code podcast two when you buy your tickets. Um, if you can't make it, you can still donate to the historical society instead of purchasing a ticket. Um, more information as well as the link to do that or to buy tickets, uh, can be found at sharktober in Irvington.com. So, uh, having said all that, Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing A World of Difference. It's the 23rd episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on March eleventh, 1960 on CBS. And in honor of Richard Matheson writing this week's episode, I'll have a bonus review of the 1964 movie The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price, and based on Richard Matheson's novel I Am Legend, and with a script co-written by him under the name Logan Swanson. Um, but before I get to that, I have a listener email to go over. Um, Greg, uh, Greg uh, wrote in in response to last week's review of The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, and uh, I'll go ahead and just read that email now. Greg writes, So the next time the dome light in the family car goes out, does that mean the aliens are trying to foment uh, marital warfare in my household? It makes me wonder. Uh, thanks for your kind words. Good show as always. Uh, Savor the first season of The Twilight Zone because it's likely the peak of the show and television in general. Then he went on to say, Spot on regarding the softcore porn look of The Monsters Are on Maple Street, the 2002 remake. Or 2003, it aired. But um, he went on to say, The 80s Zone has it too. What's the deal? Is it because they were shot on video? The look of the original Twilight Zone by comparison is so much less grating on the eyes. The black and white imagery, once you acclimate yourself to it, instills an otherworldly feel feel hard hard to match. If another Twilight Zone reboot is imminent, they should try doing it in the stylized black and white approach of Sin City. That was a hit with black and white phobic millennials and teamed with the film noir flavor original Twilight Zone capitalized on with a vengeance. Uh, And then he also said a suggested pairing with the upcoming long live Walter Jameson is an X-Files episode titled Tethonis. Uh, Both of them masterfully deal with uh, eternal life and the attendant regrets. Looking forward to your review of A World of Difference. The opening of that blew my mind when I first saw it. It's also it's just one more example of how Serling and company could use effects cheaply and sparingly and still pack more of a punch than anything the monsters are on Maple Street. And it's subtle as twerking brethren ever ever managed. Finally, the Grateful Dead's interpretation of Twilight Zone's immortal theme song from the 1980s seri- series was was head and shoulders superior to 2002's abortion? And that email came in from Greg. And once again, you can email me at matt at obsessiveviewer dot com about anything that I ramble on about in the in this podcast or um, any episodes I'm going to be talking about or have talked about in the past or any bonus reviews. Or you know, if you just want to say hey. Um, so anyway, thank you, Greg, for the email. Um, it's always a treat when I when I get uh, get your emails. And uh, I will take you up on that uh, review recommendation. Um, I'll be reviewing Tithonus. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I guess I'll find out when I watch the episode. Um, But I'll be reviewing that next week. And I'm actually really excited about it because if I'm being completely honest, I don't think I've watched anything X-Files since I was a kid back in the 90s. So I'm very much looking forward to this. And uh, eventually, I'll go back and re like watch the entire series and all the movies and everything in the new limited series because that's a sh- that's one of my gap shows basically. Um, and regarding the uh, softcore porn look, um, I think you're right that it that it was uh, probably because they shot it on video. And I know some of the episodes in Twilight Zone's second season, I believe, were shot on video, and I'm kind of. I'm kind of curious how that's going to look. Um, not that they'll have the core porn look, but I know that there's going to be a bit of a drop in the visual quality for those episodes. Um, also, I wonder if these remakes, the 80s and 2002 remake, I wonder if they weren't given that big of budgets either. Um, because that's that's one thing that kind of, I noticed, I th- I want to say, uh, I can't say with any certainty, but I, I almost want to say that the 2002 show was, uh, on like UPN or something. So I don't think they would have as much money to play around with. And that could also be a reason why Forrest Whitaker walked in with a freaking green screen behind him. That was so, so cringeworthy. Um, but anyway, um, uh, about the, uh, potential or probable or what have you, uh, Twilight Zone reboot. Um, that's a really interesting idea for it. They actually announced the interactive, the interactive reboot, I should say of, uh, Twilight Zone back in April. But I mean, there hasn't been anything else mentioned about it like at all, but if, and when that comes about, it'll be interesting It'll be interesting to see what they do with it, um, because w- when they announced it, it was hinted that it would be a choose your own adventure type of show. Which, still, I I really I really freaking hope that isn't the case. But anyway, it'll just be interesting because it'll be coming out at kind of a really unique time for uh, sci-fi anthology shows. Because um, like right now we have Black Mirror, which is about to come back October twenty first. Um, And then also in the pipeline for the next year or so, we'll also have Electric Dreams, The World of Philip K. Dick, and uh, Dimension 404 on Hulu. Um, So I'm kind of wondering how the Twilight Zone reboot, reboot, I don't know why I I mispronounced that, um, reboot will stand out aside from it being the Twilight Zone brand and hopefully, hopefully dropping the interactive thing because I just I really think that'll just pigeonhole the uh, creativity of the show Um, but to what you said about the uh, Sin City black and white style I think that's that's a really interesting um, idea and that was a huge hit when the movie was released obviously but I would point out that uh, Sin City a Dame to Kill For came out in 2014 and that did not that wasn't received well at all. So I'm kind of curious if the people remaking twilight zone, if they, if they had that idea, I wonder if they would be too afraid to do something that, uh, visually out there when seeing that sin city, a dame to kill for didn't, um, wasn't, didn't work like gangbusters. Um, but I think it would be an interesting way to separate twilight zone from the crowd though, especially since, as I mentioned, we have a few different shows that are going to be out there. Um, yeah, so I guess we'll see. And hopefully we get some, some kind of news about this, uh, reboot that's supposed to be coming because (laughs) like, uh, the Philip K. Dick show, Dimension 404, um, uh, Black Mirror's new season, like all of these, all of these things have been announced and, and they've had follow-up news items and everything. And like, it's been since April, since we've heard anything about the, uh, the Twilight Zone one. But, um, anyway, so finally, to kind of round this out, I did go ahead and, uh, I YouTubed the 80s Twilight Zone theme song. And I agree. It's much, much better than, uh, that 2002 version. Um, I, I liked it. I'm, I'm kind of curious to, uh, eventually get to the 80s series. But I thought that the theme song was very kind of understated and, uh, it definitely has an 80s feel to it. Okay, so that rounds us out for the uh, email. Uh, thanks again, Greg, for writing in. And uh, once again, you can feel free to email me anytime at Matt at dot com or reach out to me on Twitter at Obsessive Viewer or uh, on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypon. So anyway, Now's the time, of course, to get to the main review of this episode. Um, on this this week on the podcast, I'll be reviewing A World of Difference. As I said, it as I said, it aired on March eleventh, nineteen sixty. And as usual, I'll be reading uh, a spoiler heavy plot summary from the Twilight Zone companion, uh, written by Mark Zuckri. Businessman Arthur Curtis is surprised to find the phone in his office dead but he's even more surprised when he hears a voice behind him shout, "Cut!" and turns to see that his office is actually a set on a soundstage. What's more, everyone on the set insists that Curtis is actually Jerry Reagan, a drunken movie star on the decline, and that Arthur Curtis is the character Reagan plays in the movie. Determined to assert his identity, Curtis commandeers the car of Reagan's shrewish ex-wife And drives to where his home should be. There he finds no trace of his wife or daughter, or his house, or even the street they live on. Later at Jerry Reagan's house, Curtis calls information for the number of the company he's worked for, uh, he's worked at, for the past seven years. No listing. Thinking his client is having a nervous breakdown, Reagan's agent tries to reassure him, telling him he needn't worry, or he needn't return to the picture that the studio has canceled the production. The sets are being dismantled. Realizing that the only that the only fragile link to his world, the office set, is about to be destroyed, Curtis races to the studio. Just in time, he dashes onto the set and pleads with some unseen force not to maroon him in this uncaring place. The sounds of studio hustle-bustle fade away. Curtis finds himself back in the office he knew, complete with four solid walls. Meanwhile, the agent arrives on the soundstage and finds that Jerry Reagan is nowhere to be found. Okay, so before I get to my review, of course, um, I'm going to have a quick rundown of the talent involved in this episode. Starring as Arthur Curtis, or Jerry Reagan, is Howard Duff. Um, This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, he also appeared in one episode of Science Fiction Theater in 1956 titled Sound of Murder. And he was also in one episode of Night Gallery in the segment There Aren't Any More uh back in 1972. Um, this is interesting to note, and I'll get into it more as I get through the rest of the uh, episode here. But he was married to uh, Ida Lupino uh, for 33 years before they divorced. Um You guys will know her from being in... um or at least I know her from being in 16 millimeter shrine. I know that she has appeared in, I think one or two other episodes and directed another episode. I think, I think the episode she directed was in season five, I want to say. Uh, but anyway, I know her from, um, the 16 millimeter shrine because I'm going through it for the first time. Um, and that's just, I found that kind of interesting also because the sim, there are a lot of similarities between those two episodes, 16 millimeter shrine and, uh, A world of difference. Co-starring in this episode as Brinkley is David White. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Next we'll see him is in Season 3 in the episode I Sing the Body Electric. Um, He also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1959's Delusion. Um, He's best known for about 191 episodes of Bewitched where he played Larry Tate. And uh, he also appeared in The Apartment and also the 1985 version of Brewster's Millions with uh, Richard Pryor and John Candy. And appearing as Marty Fisher is Frank Maxwell. This is his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in one episode of Tales of Tomorrow in 1952 called The Window. And one episode of One Step Beyond in 1959 called Forked Lightning. And one episode of The Outer Limits in 1963 titled The Man with the Power. And then rounding out the cast is Eileen Ryan as Nora Reagan. This is her only episode of The Twilight Zone. And she had one episode, she appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1959 called Make Me Not a Witch. And it's also, uh, worth noting she is, uh, the mother of Sean Penn, which that was pretty interesting. A uh, writer for this episode is Richard Matheson. And I have not found any information about Matheson's inspiration for this episode, um, except that I found a quote of him saying, uh, quote, I liked that one. It's one of those Kafka esque ideas that you get that a man goes to his office, thinks he's living a normal life uh, and suddenly finds out that he's an actor on a set. So that's that's basically the only thing I can find that he said about uh about this episode. But the director of the episode, Ted Post, he I, I listened to the uh commentary track that he provided on the DVD and he spoke very highly of Matheson and um the script for this episode in that commentary track. He like he was talking about how when uh Serling approached him with the script Post was, like, ecstatic to get to work on it because he was so in love with the script. As for the director, um, Ted Post, this is his first of four Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, we won't see his work again until uh, Season 5's episode, Probe 7, Over and Out. Um, and this is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, so, Serling wanted uh, Ted post earlier in twilight zones run. Um, I guess, I guess he was, he wanted to approach him when they were starting the show, but the director of photography, George Clemens, uh, just flat out refused to work with post, um, because they had worked together before on different shows. I think, uh, Schlitz playhouse and some other things. And, uh, Clemens said that, uh, Post was too complex of a director and he would ask for way too many shots that required way too much work and not enough, not enough time. He, he was just a very complex director. Um, so, um, so according to the commentary from, from Ted post, what happened was um, Ra- uh, Serling had approached Post about directing episodes. And then he'd mentioned that about Clemens and, Ted Post said, well, can't you, I mean, it's your show. Can't you kind of override him? And then, uh, I guess Serling was just like, well, you know, he's, he's won some Emmys. He's, he's really, he's really, uh, he could get final say on this because he was so renowned, essentially. Um, the way that he phrased the, he phrases it in the commentary is, uh, is really kind of, kind of nice. It, it paints Serling in this really respectful, uh, respectful light. Um, however, when, uh, the way that post got, uh, a chance to direct a world of difference is that Serling reached out to him, uh, to direct it because George Clemens was on vacation. Um, so someone else, uh, uh, was, was the, uh, someone else shot this episode. And it's also uh, also worth mentioning that outside of the Twilight Zone, Ted Post directed uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which was the second movie in the Planet of the Apes franchise. Of course, the first one being co-written um, by Serling. And I- I've seen Beneath the Planet of the Apes. A-, a couple years ago on Obsessive Viewer, I reviewed every, every movie in the franchise um, in the lead-up to Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And... Uh, I'll just read this quick blurb from my review of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Um, I said, um, All told, Beneath the Planet of the Apes is a good enough sequel to a sci-fi classic. It has elements of what made the original movie great, but in the name of expanding the franchise's mythology, they fall somewhat by the wayside. There are some strange choices in the second half and ending of the movie, but it's still an enjoyable, uh, though poorly paced, journey. So, that's what I thought of. It I don't really remember much about it at this point because my memory sucks, and also I was re- watching them basically <laughs> every single day. I was watching a new Planet of the Apes movie and then writing the review the next morning, so I could so I could post them before Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So okay, rounding out the directors that um, Ted Post said that A World of Difference was a quote complex study of a man trying to find his identity. And, uh, in the commentary, he references Gary or, or I mean, I'm sorry, Jerry in the show, it's spelled with a G. So it's, it's, I don't know. Anyway, um, Jerry slash Arthur's problem as being a quote, schizophrenic episode. And I don't know if, I don't know if he was just saying that in general, like kind of a colloquial, like, or, or like, um, just putting, just putting a label on it. Like, Oh, he's having this schizophrenic, uh, problem or if he believes that to be the case with Jerry. Um, I, so I wasn't really sure. I'm sure that it was just a kind of blanket term that he used for, to categorize what was going on in the episode. But either way, I, I recommend listening to the commentary. Um, it's great. By the, like about halfway through it, it turns into a really great director commentary in that he has a lot of really interesting things to say about his craft as a director. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. So, okay, having said all of that, getting the talent rundown down and everything, that was a weird phrasing, <laughs> we've come to my feelings as a first time viewer of this episode. And, uh, what I've been doing lately, um, or at least I've been trying to whenever I start making my notes before I start writing my notes, uh, for the first viewing, is I've been writing down basically what, um, my, what my knowledge of the episode was before going into it. And, basically what I knew about A World of Difference was that I just knew that it was about an actor who thinks the role he's playing is real life. That was my idea going into it. But that kind of raises an interesting question that I kind of want to um posit here. Do people view this episode as one about an actor becoming a character or about a character coming into our world? Um, because all of the... All of the plot descriptions, the like the one that I just read from the Twilight Zone companion, as well as the one in Wiki, on Wikipedia, they all say this is about a man who suddenly, real, suddenly finds out that his uh, life is a movie, or he's an actor on a set. Everyone says that he's an actor on a set. And while we never see Jerry we still learn so much about him, so it kinda makes me wonder if we're supposed to it, it kinda makes me wonder if certain people think that this is a that the that this is a story about a fictional character coming to life or if this is about a troubled actor um receding into his role in becoming the uh the most method actor in the history of acting. <laughs> And maybe it was my understanding coming into the episode um, beforehand, but I I've viewed it as an actor escaping his life and becoming the character he's playing. Not that it's a conscious thing on his part, but just that he's become the character. Um, so I thought that it was just an, interest, an interesting question to pose because I feel like that that could give an interesting perspective on how people interpret this episode. So, um, if you, let me know what you think. Did you view it as Jerry turning into Arthur or Arthur becoming, uh, coming to life and taking over Jerry? So I want to start off right off the bat with just some bits and pieces about the technical aspects of this episode, particularly the directing and the, and some of the set pieces. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately I knew about this amazing reveal of the film set, uh, like uh, going into the episode. I kind of, I knew that it was going to be revealed that he was, wasn't actually in an office or anything that he was on a film set, but that didn't make it any less impressive. Um, It's such a great buildup to what is, what is an astonishing reveal um, that it's actually a movie. And there's just, there's, Everything about it just works so well. Um, there is just the right amount of detail in the dialogue between Arthur and the, the, uh, the secretary to convince us that he is real and that this is really happening. And the reveal is just as jarring for us as it is for him. And the fact that it's all in one take is absolutely astounding to me. Like That entire sequence is really remarkable. And now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm kind of wondering if we're supposed to view it as this entire time. Well, I guess we would have to, well, uh, I don't know. I'm all over the place here. Um, It would, uh, I wonder if we, we should view that as him coming into his office and seeing the wall there. Is that just a manifestation of his mind or are we supposed to intuit that that wall is there? And then when he gets up and walks away, uh, walks to go to the secretary and then they yell cut. Are we supposed to say that this is, are we supposed to view that as it being what's really, what was really there all along or him transforming into the actor and bringing and being brought into the world? Um, that's a really roundabout way of articulating that. And I hope that I articulated that well enough, but I will say that Ted post said in the uh, document or er, not documentary, but the commentary that, the disappearing wall served as a quote indication of what's going on in his head. So I think that just answered my question, but it's all up to interpretation as well, because it's not like it's explicitly stated within, within the episode. So I'm, I'm just curious what, uh, what about it worked for you guys? Did you see it as him being in this office and then being transformed into the actor or, him seeing the one like wanting to see the wall, his mind manifesting that wall there so that he just, so that he could live in his own world. Also a couple other things on the technical side of this episode. There is a great um, like POV driving scene. That's from just from the point of view of the car um, uh, while he's racing back to get to the set that I thought was really fantastic. It like just it's, kind of actiony um it's it's fast paced and it keeps us in it keeps us in Arthur's state of urgency that he is experiencing in that moment and then uh finally for the technical side of things the music was absolutely terrific and haunting and surreal and terrifying at times it was just i loved it this might be you know, this might be my favorite use of music in the twilight zone so far it was just really really incredible as for the actual plot of the episode i right off the bat i thought uh, i was excited i should say that it was another episode about a character struggling with their grip on reality um even though i wasn't too crazy about um mirror image uh, i was still excited to see this uh type of story play out again so soon and there's a scene where in the midst of Arthur's confusion at the beginning, after he's after the director has come up to him and talked to him, and he's kind of slowly realizing what's going on or he's trying to make sense of what's going on, I should say. Arthur looks out the window and he sees that it's just the rest of the soundstage. And I don't know, just adding that to the sequence is such a nice touch and it's such a great way to hammer home how much of a shock this entire experience is for him, um, for him, Arthur Curtis, I should say. And I just, I, I love that. And I'm, uh, like right before that, I think it might be right before, right after, um, no, it's right before he is, he's kind of backing away cause he's backing away from the crew of the film essentially. And you can see in the background, the actress, <laughs> the actress, um, playing the actress who played the secretary in the movie, um, you can see her look terrified, just on the edge of the frame, and backing away to kind of give him room to to move. And it's such a great, uh, a a nice subtle touch to it because it's like she's terrified, and it shows how this how the climate of what's going on, the atmosphere of the room has shifted so severely that like this woman is backing away in a fearful way because she doesn't know what's going to happen. Also, it could be that she still, she wanted to increase her screen time. I, I don't know if that's was intentional or not, but, um, but yeah, so after, after Arthur goes through, go, like goes through the set and goes outside cause he wants to get away and everything. And he, he's going to go home. He's almost run over by his ex wife and uh I have to say the introduction of her was kind of a big pill to swallow. I I liked how it brought us up to date with the state of of Jerry's life cuz immediately she's asking, "Are you drunk again?" and she's t- already talking about how she wants to take all of his money. And and I and I do like that. I and I'll go on to talk about this later, but I really like how like she is so cruel and terrible toward him and that is just the direct opposite of Arthur's idealized life in the movie because what we know of Arthur in the movie is that he's married, he has a kid, they're going to celebrate her his kid's birthday and then he and his wife are going to go on vacation and they need to move the move the plane tickets or reservations and it's just it's it's and he's a successful businessman and all that it's just it's such a such an idealized view of, of a successful 36 year old man. And that contrasts really well to Jerry's life, which is he's an actor who's an alcoholic, who is, um, barely functioning, um, or barely working essentially, because he's clearly, clearly losing, losing opportunities and people don't want to work with him. His, he's, divorced his wife is t- taking all of his money and very very vocally so and very uh very much um uh, emotionally abusing him or verbally abusing him at every chance she gets um but that introduction of her is it it just feels a bit overdone and it's it's like she's turned up to 11 from the second she appears on the screen and then, and then that that energy level just sustains throughout the episode for her in terms of her performance. So I don't know. It didn't bother me that much. I just, I just think that it was a little bit um, of a like I said, it's a big pill to swallow. And not that it's not that it's not necessary because she does bring up his drinking, so that serves a very specific purpose to the episode, and it adds a layer to what's going on as well. It just didn't feel that smooth to me. And then, uh, this is, this is probably not really worth mentioning at all, but it's, it's kind of something that kind of made me not laugh or anything. It kind of made me roll my eyes a little bit. Um, because the first, at the first act break, we've got the guy on the phone that says he's explaining to the studio what's going on. And he says, uh, he says, yeah, he thinks he's Arthur Curtis. Yeah. The character he's playing in the picture. And then that's the that's cut to commercials, and I'm like, "Duh!" Um, <laughs> it was a bit of a "duh" moment because uh, it's almost ten minutes into the episode. We can kind of infer what's going on, and I felt like it didn't really need to be stated outright. Well, I mean, I guess it's necessary because you know commercial breaks. They wanted to keep the audience there, so might as well end on a big, a big thing there. But I mean, that's kind of kind of what everyone already knew, I feel, um, but whatever. I mean, it it didn't, like I said, it didn't make me laugh out loud. It wasn't like that moment in mirror image where, um, (laughs) uh, where Millicent freaks out because her bag isn't there. And then, uh, Martin Milner's character points to like three inches to her right and says, Oh, it's right there. Uh, it wasn't as as awkward as that for me, but it still kind of made me roll my eyes a little bit like, okay, (laughs) okay guy, you're a little slow on the uptake on that. So anyway, um, then we get a scene where Arthur goes to what he thinks is his house and he mistakes this little girl for his daughter. And there's a really interesting moment kind of going back to his relationship with his ex wife. Um, because after he, accidentally assaults the child um or frightens the child um his ex-wife tells him to get in the car because he's at risk for being arrested for attempted assault and when i first saw that like on the surface it seems almost like she still cares about him and that she wants him to be safe but i kind of feel like it's also more that uh she sees it as a risk of as a risk uh as a possible um, risk to her getting her money that she, that she wants. But even still, I feel like there's a deeper story to mine from, from their scenes together and from that interaction. And it's not anything that necessarily needed to be expanded upon in the episode, but there's like just enough stuff there to really kind of uh, figure, like to kind of, I don't know, fill in the blanks in, in your own mind. And then uh, a little bit later, I thought that it was an interesting wrinkle in the story for it to be revealed that all of the information that Arthur has about Arthur came from the script. I thought that, that, was, that was a good way to kind of – it keeps a piece of the story grounded in our reality. So while the audience is siding with Arthur by default because A, he's our protagonist. B, we're introduced to him as Arthur within the, within the movie. So so we're kind of like – and also, like I said, the um, summaries are all saying Arthur is a businessman and then he finds out that he is in a movie. Um, so we're kind of predisposed to, to root for him and side with that side of his identity. But what I love about this episode or the way this episode is written is that it gives us so much more information or it gives us so much information about Jerry – that it's a, it's still a compelling, it's a, basically it's a compelling study of a troubled guy losing his sanity instead of a movie character come to life. Like you can see it either way, um, from either angle. And I really appreciated that about it because it could have easily been like a simple, like, Oh, he thinks that he's Arthur Curtis. Or, or Arthur Curtis has come to life essentially is what i'm saying i don't know i'm i'm kind of i lost my, i lost my train there but yeah it could it could have been that it could have been a story about oh this movie character entering our world but what the information given about arthur or about jerry i should say is is so compelling and so detailed that it gives us something to, or gives the episode something to ground itself in reality, and surround itself in the mysticism of the Twilight Zone, like the Twilight Zone um, tone and atmosphere. So I really enjoyed that. And then after that, we get the uh, the announcement that uh, the studio is canceling the movie. And what I really liked about this is that Arthur says. Uh, or, or Arthur is told that they're tearing down the set and that Arthur Curtis is dead. And I thought that tearing down the set was a nice metaphor for Arthur's life crumbling like Jerry's. Because um, if you look at the episode as, from, from the perspective of there's a troubled actor that's escaping into the life of the character that he's portraying, the cancellation of the movie and the set breakdown is pretty intense because it's because it is basically this guy's world crumbling like every ever, like his last um, connection to his world is crumbling around him. It's not saying that Jerry is making the conscious decision to become Arthur and that the set destruction is, is tearing away his chance at a peaceful life, but rather that I, I feel like it could be interpreted that the Twilight Zone, or the universe, or what have you, kind of chose to pluck this uh, really down, uh, this really troubled and damaged actor out of this horrible life and give him the life of Arthur Curtis, essentially. And just if you look at it under that guise, I hope that I communicated that clearly enough. Um, but if you look at it through that guise. Or, or, or through that lens, um, the idea of two lives falling apart is just compelling, and I and I like the kind of optimism at the end where, you know, he escapes, he he makes it out. So I I like seeing that in the Twilight Zone. Um, there are some pretty big similarities between this episode and Mirror Image, and this is more just my brain thinking of Mirror Image since I watched it so recently. But one way to look at this story is that it could be viewed as kind of an alternate take on mirror images, doppelganger story. Um, and what I mean by that is that Millicent's doppelganger from another universe was trying to replace her. And so maybe you can see this as, um, Arthur Curtis is crossing over into the real world. And the only way the character could live on would be by replacing Jerry Reagan or, or essentially using Jerry Reagan's body to bring him into his life. If that makes sense, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of grasping here, but I kind of I think it kind of goes back to me wanting more out of the out of the doppelganger story in Mirror Image, and maybe seeing this type of story in a world uh, um, a world of difference. I think seeing that kind of made me retroactively fill in some things with mirror image or uh, apply apply the kind of flimsy mirror image storyline to the episode here. So, I don't know. There, as I said, there are also some similarities between A World of Difference and the 16mm Shrine. Um... As I as I said Howard Duff and Ida Lupino were married for 33 years and this is actually a brief uh side note but this is pretty interesting because if I'm understanding the commentary correctly before Howard Duff Howard Duff and uh Ida Lupino were married they had broken up and then uh the director Ted Post incidentally cast them both in a play that he was directing, and he didn't tell Ida that Howard was in it. And in doing the play, the two actually rekindled their relationship, and that's when they eventually went on to get married. And I thought that was that was really interesting. That was a nice little anecdote. But anyway, back to the similarities between A World of Difference and The 16mm Shrine. Uh, I mean, A World of Difference features a man with an identity crisis... Um, either becoming the character he's playing or his consciousness is replaced by that of a fictional character, whichever interpretation you want. Um, And on the other hand, the 16 millimeter shrine focuses on an actress who is obsessed with herself in her prime and refuses to accept that she's not the same person as she was in her heyday. And it's, it's interesting to me that first of all, this is about two, Uh, two actors who are having an identity crisis, but it's also interesting to me that both episodes end with their protagonists ignoring the people who are trying to help them in favor of disappearing into their respective other worlds. And I don't know, I just, I think these two episodes would make a great double feature. And uh, finally, like I said, it's the ending of a world of difference is interesting and in its hopefulness. Uh, it's a it's a pretty positive look at its protagonist, or and ends it ends its protagonist's story in a in a in a positive way um, from from my perspective. And you can kind of view it as, like I said, I, I think I said this before, but you can view it as a man escaping a troubled life and becoming a more successful man in an idyllic life, even if it isn't a conscious choice um, on his part, the episode draws such significant parallels between the lives of Jerry and Arthur that it's kind of hard to look, it's hard to overlook that in the end, in the end, the show or the, or the universe or the twilight zone itself has chosen Arthur. So it's, it's kind of the death of Jerry and the life of Arthur is what encompasses that ending. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I thought that it was uh, handled really well as for performances. I just want to mention that, uh, like I said, i love the, the way the actress playing the actress that played the ce- secretary. I love her acting in the background of that opening scene, but my God, Howard Duff just absolutely shines in this episode It's, it's really a remarkable performance and it's really, it's really layered too. Like he's playing like consistently throughout the entire episode. He's constantly playing confusion and exasperation and fear and it's remarkable and it's at no point. Throughout this entire episode, at no point is his performance ever dull or feel overplayed or tired or anything. It's just a really magnificent performance and a really complex character that I think Howard Duff just nailed really, really hard in this episode. Uh, Just really great performance. And a lot like, uh, oh crap, I can't remember his name. Uh, Hey, Uh, just like the actor who uh, appeared in, uh, The Last Flight. It's a bummer that Howard Duff, this is his only episode of The Twilight Zone, because I would love to see him, uh, perform in this series more, but you know, oh, well, um, let's see. So for cultural subtext or the theme of the episode or what have you, um, I, like I said, I really loved the, I think that the strongest part about this entire episode is the juxtaposition of Jerry's life and Arthur's life. So like I said, Jerry is an alcoholic, barely holding on to his career, divorced from a woman who despises him and is taking him for all he's worth. He's barely able to hold a job, Um, whereas Jerry's story is that of an uh, – I'm sorry, um, Arthur's story – is this he's this career driven family man who has a loving wife, a, a a daughter, and everything is going perfectly for him. And it's interesting that that's literally the only thing we know about that that movie. <laughs> like the movie's called "The Private Life of Arthur Curtis," and I'm curious what the rest of the movie is because everything that we see about it is just this idyllic lifestyle of a man in his mid thirties. Um, the successful man in his mid thirties, but I don't know, maybe something would have happened on his vacation or maybe something did given the ending of the episode. But um, I will say as far as um, I, I don't, this isn't really worth mentioning, but Jerry's story, that of the alcoholic actor and troubled life and everything, it, it reminded me of it reminded me of what I read about gig young when I was researching my review of uh, walking distance. And I, I highly doubt that this was intentional. Of course, obviously it wasn't, but, um, he was, he had a drinking problem and, uh, it affected a lot of his, his career. And, and, uh, like he was cast in blazing saddles, but then, um, was replaced, um, due to his drinking, I believe. But, um, it's just – I think my my takeaway from that is that um, it's just sad to think that this troubled alcoholic actor is – can and is more – can be and is more real than fiction sometimes. It's just – I don't know. It's kind of a bummer. But um, as far as themes and everything for this episode, um, or one of the things I took away from it, I should say. I'll, I'll phrase it that way. I'll frame it that way. Um, was that it kind of felt like at its heart, this was a story of a guy who was kind of backed into a corner. Like, if I'm viewing it as an actor who has no, has no power in his life, he's, like I said, all of the, everything about Jerry's life is, is accurate. Um, or, uh, is negative and, and hurtful and, and destructive. And I kind of feel like my takeaway, if there's a lesson to be gleaned from this episode, is that, the entire episode is him, is, is Arthur Curtis trying to regain his life or trying to make sure that he doesn't lose this life, this life that, um, is so idyllic and idealistic and, and this idealistic depiction of a successful man. Um, and it kind of feels like what it's trying to say is that in, and this isn't really a strong moral or this isn't really a a moral that's really explicitly communicated in the episode, but kind of one of my takeaways from it was that it kind of appears to be about how, if, if you're not really happy with, um, your life or whatever, you know, just be someone else essentially. Um, maybe that's not there. Maybe I'm, um, maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it kind of feels like, I mean, this entire, the, the entire episode is about a guy, depending on your perspective of it or your interpretation of it, it's, it's about a guy becoming another guy, um, a better guy essentially. So maybe there's some self-help or self-improvement thing, uh, underscoring this entire episode. I don't know. Um so for trivia for this episode, uh the music that I talked about that was so beautiful and haunting and amazing. There are moments where it sounds like a vocalist, but apparently uh the sound was actually that of an organ-like synthesizer. So that kind of brings an even more uh, or a deeper eeriness to it for me because it could because it's not a uh it's not a human speaking or a human making those noises also this episode was sort of remade in 1989's uh the twilight zone uh they had an episode called uh, special service and it was about a man who realizes that his life is actually a plot for a television show so i don't know if it's like i don't know if it's like a direct remake of it but um heavily influenced it i'm sure and this last piece of trivia isn't anything that um, that I can corroborate or confirm because I haven't found it um, anywhere that I can f- remember. <laughs> but it looks like Jerry's house. It it looks like it's the same set from uh, the episode Elegy. So I can't say for sure. And now that I'm saying it a lot, I can't remember if I... I can't remember if that was maybe in the trivia for that episode or not, and maybe I mentioned it. So if I did, I just looked like a complete idiot, but whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's, that's basically my review, and I'll go ahead and kind of give my closing thoughts on this episode. You know, coming off of The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, which is, like I said, it's, it, that was such an amazing episode. I'm glad that there is an episode that it, that had enough, um, that had enough stuff to dig my teeth into or t- to kind of engage my mind with. Not to say that that's not uncommon with the Twilight Zone itself, but I liked that there was a meaty episode to, to kind of really engage me with, um, or at least give me be open to interpretation from me um, from my perspective. So I liked that, and I like the episode overall. I like it quite a bit. I don't know if it'll really make any like my top 10 or top five list or anything, but, um, I think it's a really strong episode. Um, and it, this is the type of episode that like, if, even if I'm just reading too much into it, into stuff that isn't there, I like that. It gives me the option to read into things that aren't there. (laughs) Um, there's at least enough wiggle room for interpretation that it's not an episode that doesn't engage me or left me, feeling frustrated for whatever they were trying to say with it. So I like this episode quite a bit. And, um, also I just realized that, um, so we're, we're coming up kind of close to the end of the third or first season. Why did I say third season? Um, we're coming up, we're kind of coming up to the end of the first season, kind of closing in. I mean, there's still like 10 episodes left or I think 13, but, uh, but Greg's thoughts in his email saying that <laughs> to savor the first season that has me kind of a little concerned, but I'm hoping that I'm hoping that you know the rest of the series is is good. I know that there are a lot of iconic episodes that are coming in in future seasons, but I am savoring this this season of television <laughs> as I podcast about it. Um. So, okay, so I guess that'll about do it for my review of A World of Difference. And uh, before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 170 of The Obsessive Viewer. It's a weekly podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at ObsessiveViewer.com. They're so. Miles Teller is so hilarious and mm-hmm. quick and witty, and Michael B. Jordan is demonstrated his ability to do that as well in some of the other roles he's been in those two should be should be hilarious with each other and right. they, they, we should be in love with those characters but they're barely characters right. with what we got out of that movie It's it was just astoundingly rushed no, nothing was developed not the characters not the story not the sets not the music everything was just so <laughs> bare bones it, mm. it, it was just like an incomplete film and of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at ObsessiveViewer.com. And you can find the episode you just heard a clip from at ObsessiveViewer.com slash OV170. All right, so this week's bonus review is The Last Man on Earth from 1964 starring Vincent Price. Based on uh, Richard Matheson's novel I Am, uh, I Am Legend, in this uh this review wasn't I mean it was it was suggested by Brandon Yoder from Billy and Brennan uh, watch movies at Billy and dot com and from Shocktober and Irvington at Irvington.com. Anyway, um Brandon had written in an email uh that I that I mentioned last week where he wrote and part of it was one of my favorites of Richard Matheson's adaptations is The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price. In my opinion, it is the best of the adaptations of his story, I Am Legend. Uh, Though saying anything is better than the Will Smith version or the slow-moving Omega Man with Charlton Heston isn't really a surprise, I think it would make a great bonus review for a future Matheson episode. And fortunately enough, I had already planned to have it for this episode. So um, also fortunate was that the entire movie is available in its entirety on YouTube. So if you haven't uh, watched it, yet or haven't uh haven't had a chance to watch it, you can do that on YouTube. What I did was I just had it on YouTube on my phone and I uh casted it used my Chromecast to watch it on TV, so perfect. Um a couple pieces of trivia about this movie before I get into my brief thoughts on it are that uh the script, as I mentioned earlier, was written in part by Richard Matheson but apparently he was so dissatisfied with the result that he uh, was credited as Logan Swanson so he wouldn't have his name on it. Also, the movie um, was, helped inspire George Romero uh, for, to make Night of, the, Night of the Living Dead. And I can definitely see that inspiration. Um, also, Richard Matheson thought that Vincent Price was miscast... And uh Richard Matheson originally wrote the script in nineteen fifty seven, at which point it was to have it was supposed to have been uh produced by Hammer Films with uh Fritz uh with Fritz Lang slated to direct it. And uh finally for trivia, Charlton Heston uh watched this movie before uh making the Omega Man and uh uh Heston described this uh this version of the movie as being uh incredibly botched, totally unfrightening, ill-acted, sloppily written and photographed. So, uh, that that was his his take on it. <laughs> so, okay, so I watched this this morning and uh so one of the first things that I realized or, or noticed about this was that um 20 Days Later drew a lot from this movie, especially the opening sequence. Um which which is fine, you know. What it's not a knock against either movie, but um I from the outside I really like the shots of the empty city in in this movie and uh the having the bodies everywhere is also a nice touch and also having Vincent Price uh lugging around the bodies to take them to the pit uh was was a really nice touch as well. And once again, I'm not going to spoil the movie or anything. Um, but there are some elements to it that I really, I really kind of clung to and really enjoyed. Um, one thing that stuck out to me was that, um, Vincent Price's character, uh, Morgan, uh, he, he still dresses properly and I, and I like that. Um, I'm kind of curious if it was that, if that was a conscious, um, decision because, if it was, then it definitely shows he has humanity left in him and everything. And I I thought that was a nice touch. And, uh, he also has this routine that, so, so the way that this movie is structured, I I should start there is that we see about 20, 30 minutes of him doing his routine, which is to, um, create, like make these stakes and, uh, uh, to kill vampires with and to uh, make steaks and and get food and take bodies to the pit and to do uh, to just basically self-sustain and, and sustain his, his livelihood, get garlic to put on the doors, um, get, collect mirrors, all this all this stuff. and we spend about 20 to 30 minutes doing that. And it's it's an hour and 27 minute movie essentially so um, that's kind of it's a it's a little bit long but what comes next is this very extensive, very lengthy flashback sequence that shows what his life was like before um, before and, and the way that he phrases it. I, I love the way that he phrases it, but before he inherit uh, he inherited the world. the way that it's structured. Kind of threw me off a little bit because I thought that the flashback was just gonna be a quick, a quick thing, but it, no, it's like it's like the middle portion of the entire movie, and it's funny because my notes, I have like, oh yeah, I like that because the flashback with him and his family showed him as a pleasant family man, in in contrasting that with uh, his his performance as kind of the tired, reluctant hero who's who's kind of doing all of these things to keep uh the the vampires at bay or to keep them to keep the monsters away and to hunt down the monsters and everything. it's show like he's playing it up really well as the tired, you know, he doesn't he's getting too old for this thing. Um but then and and then and then I say, oh wow, this is an extensive flashback sequence. Uh but it's a g and I put in my notes like, oh that's a good break from the present day story. And it gives us backstory before the uh, before the actual present story got too stale or too repetitive, because it was running that risk um, because that's all he was doing. And then my next note is flashback is getting kind of long. It's a huge exposition dump <laughs> and uh, so so that's kind of where I was at with that, is that we get this long, long. Flashback sequence, which is fine in retrospect now that I've seen the full movie, because it's you know, it's it's giving out all of this important information. But my my issue with it was that it comes after we've received a half an hour's worth of uh, just basically being brought into Morgan's world. And it just felt sloppy that they would take us away from that for such an extensive period of time. Um, but the actual content of the flashback is fine. I, I enjoy it. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was, it just wasn't placed well. And I keep mentioning this pit and, and I'll, uh, I'll kind of cut it a little short here, um, to keep from spoiling it. But basically he takes these, he takes the bodies that he finds to, you know, clean up, clean up everything and takes them to this pit for, you know, disposal. And just as a concept, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking And it comes up in certain contexts throughout the movie that it kind of, kind of it retroactively adds context to the beginning of the movie that it, it kind of, I'm kind of dancing around it, but it's, it makes it a lot more significant in the story. And, and I really enjoyed that. And then finally with the flashback sequences, uh, in my notes, I put coming around to the flashback. It's a big part of the story. I dig it. Um, And yeah, so and then all of that, like the first two thirds of the movie were really quite good. I really enjoyed them. But then by the last third of the movie, it, it just got kind of uh, kind of dull, I guess, or just kind of it didn't it didn't really engage me that much there's there's some uh, kind of pivotal moments in in the last third of the movie that should have engaged me more but i just i just think that kind of the the different sequences of the movie the the first 30 minutes the extensive flashback the ending they all kind of include different circumstances for the character and different supporting characters for, for the character. And they were all kind of disparate and, and not really that, um, engaging as a whole for the entire movie for me. Um, so yeah, but I did like that at the end, there's some cool action. Um, <laughs> uh, that kind of brought me back around to it, but I mean overall it overall it wasn't a bad movie. I, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. It made me really want to read I Am Legend. So I, I might do that eventually. I don't I don't know when because I'm trying to read The Dark Tower again. But anyway, um I'll get to that eventually. I'm sure, but yeah, overall it was overall it was pretty good. I I, I enjoyed it. I don't have many memories of I Am Legend from from when it came out. I think I only saw it once. Um but, and I haven't seen it since and I've never seen the Omega man. So I think in the future for future episodes, maybe in season two and then in season three, I'll review, I'll find an episode to review the Omega man. And then I am legend to kind of give a full, I am legend review for Richard Matheson's novels, adaptations, um, on this podcast. So, yeah, overall, like I said, it was pretty good. I, I, I liked it. I liked Vincent Price a lot in it. Um, but other than that, it was kind of a little clunky, I guess, would be how I would describe it. Okay, so that will just about do it for this week's episode of Anthology. Thank you guys for listening again and for continuing to listen and uh, putting up with me. Um, <laughs> I had this weird thing with my mouth tonight. I don't know, like, I don't know if I sound normal or, or if I sound weird or whatever, but if I sound abnormal, I apologize. Um, but anyway, uh, next week on the podcast in episode 19 of the podcast, I'll be reviewing long live Walter Jameson episode 24 of the twilight zones first season. And the bonus review on that will of course be the aforementioned tithonus or Tithonus or however you pronounce it. Uh, An episode from the X-Files 6th season, which I'm really looking forward to. And uh, based on the recommendation of listener Greg. So having said all of that, once again, if you want to, um, this episode's potential weirdness notwithstanding, uh, you can donate to help support the podcast at uh, anthologypod.com. There's a donate button. I was thinking about doing um, Patreon Uh, a Patreon thing for it like with different rewards and stuff but uh, that's still in the planning phases we have one for uh, Obsessive Viewer so I don't know, we'll see but anyway, uh, thank you guys for listening and I'll talk to you guys next week Thank you for listening to Anthology presented by ObsessiveViewer.com You can find more episodes at anthologypod.com. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at Obsessive Viewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out the Obsessive Viewer a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends, Mike and tiny. Also check out the obsessive viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com com, where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the obsessive viewer subreddit at r slash obsessive viewer and check out obsessive dot our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, Check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.